see how easy it is just to lighten somebody's heart a little bit, you know, and spread a few smiles, you know. I don't know why that isn't just a more common, normal thing, you know, that we would speak words that would actually bring just a little bit of life and a little levity to life. And our church could use a little levity right now, couldn't it? Couldn't it? And, uh, you know, churches go through seasons, and I would just encourage you um, to think, you know, sometimes when you're thinking about church life or you're finding a church home, um, I'll just tell you, we need your love. We need your love, and uh, we need your heart, and we need who you are and the encouragement that that brings to us. And so I know that that's never anything that anyone tells you in trying to sell themselves as a church, you know. You know, it's like what I was telling you. We need your love. We need your love. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 20. I think four weeks ago I said we were going to finish Luke chapter 20. Sorry about that. Let me give you the context. The context in Luke that we've been working through is Israel's leaders across the board are rejecting Jesus. And Jesus is utterly rejecting them. That's the context. That's where Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. We're really a very short time out um, from the cross. And He has come into Jerusalem. He has wiped out the the temple and its wickedness and sent the money changers um, flying, so to speak, and uh, driven them out to purify the temple as a place for all the nations to be able to worship. The, of course, the religious leaders who oversee it, who make their living off of the religious worship of Israel um, and who abuse everything about it for their own gain, just like all the false shepherds have always done in Israel, throughout all the Old Testament, where God constantly rebukes them and rebukes the people for listening to them. This is who they are. They are, Jesus is finally done. Jesus is done. And uh, that's, that's the context in which we're at. And what's happened is, you know, they, they've come to Jesus and they've brought their best question, you know. And it's just, it's an arrogance in us. We shouldn't be able to look at, we shouldn't look at the religious leaders and go, man, what was wrong with them? You know, the, the, the point is for us in application is to go, you know, we do the same thing. We think we've got the singular question, and this is what the world does. We think we've got the singular question that will forever satisfy my own heart that Jesus isn't who He says He is. And this is where the religious leaders do. They bring their question to Jesus. Jesus answers their question and answers it in a way that completely silences them so that they're unwilling even to ask him any more questions. That's actually what it says in um, verse 40 of chapter 20. Right in verse 39, then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. You know, it's like, we don't really know what else to say to this right now. And then verse 40, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. You know? You just kind of love that reality. You know, Jesus' wisdom and Jesus' knowledge of God, obviously, and uh, Jesus' understanding of truth and of all of Old Testament teaching, He brings to bear on them in such a way that it's kind of like, if we ask Him, but you understand, it's not, it's not, it, when they are not daring to ask Him any more questions, it's not that they're somehow really submitting to His authority. The reason they don't ask him any more questions is because they realize that every time they ask a question, they get shamed publicly. <laughs> They're like, okay, this isn't a good plan to try to capture Jesus if every time we ask him to try to capture him, kill him, and do it in a way that the crowds would be satisfied with rather than revolt against the religious leaders. If we keep asking him questions and he keep answering, he keeps answering like this, then he's going to keep shaming us and potentially win the crowd. So it's not like, it's not like 
they're shutting up just because Jesus has supreme authority and this is some exercise of faith. It's really, this is an effort in self-protection. This is an effort in uh, protecting themselves from any more public shame from Jesus because they, want the, they need the people on their side if they're going to take Jesus out. But Jesus isn't done publicly shaming them. Jesus isn't done publicly shaming them. And that's really what you have in these couple verses in um, chapter 20 in verses 41 through 44. Let's turn uh, to the scripture and read there. So they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So they ask questions. They're done. Now Jesus asks the question. One commentator you know, said, this is the question of the day. After a day filled with questions comes the question of the day. Let's pray. Father, we turn to your truth and to your word and to the witness of your dear and beloved Son, the Messiah, the Lord of all, the one who possesses all authority and power and who is raised from the dead, ascended to the highest place at your right hand, ruling over all the earth and all the universe, holding it together by the word of his power, speaking forth through his truth, by his spirit to his church, and ruling us by his law and his words. May we see a glimpse of the glory of Christ here. And may we leave not just thinking about Jesus, but persuaded of our need to look and act and talk and think like Christ after him. In his name we pray. Amen. There's a couple things I just want you to note as we work through this passage. And the first thing I want you to note is that Jesus is arguing that the Old Testament is authoritative to reveal who the Messiah would be. You've heard me say this many times. The Old Testament didn't leave so much mystery that Jesus wouldn't be very clearly understood by any who had faith. And by faith, I mean they have faith in what the Old Testament actually said and actually taught. It wasn't all a mystery. It wasn't. It just wasn't. Right? Jesus comes. This is why, this is why you, when you read the Gospels, what does it say? Right? This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill because Jesus is built very squarely and specifically and plainly on the Old Testament witness. Psalms. Just in the book of Psalms, there is repeated messianic. And, and you know, in the Old Testament, some of it is more shadowy. And you have to think a little bit about how does this point me to who the Messiah is. You know? But sometimes it's as simple as, let's say the book of Leviticus, for instance. What's the book of Leviticus about? It's about the holiness of God, and it's about the sinfulness of man, and it's about the need for a permanent atoning sacrifice in Christ, the Messiah. That's Leviticus. But if you're like, I understand that if you're like tied down to any, any particular Levitical law, you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Because I don't have pigeons in a cage ready to take to an altar tomorrow, you know? But if you understand the big picture of what Leviticus is telling you, it's, it's telling you that sin is not finally and fully dealt with, it's only temporarily dealt with, and that it begs the need for Christ. And so what Jesus is saying, he says, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, see, he's, he's witnessing to the authority of the Old Testament to teach truth about himself. 
And I just want to encourage you, when you're reading your Old Testament, look for Christ. Look for Christ. See the glory of Christ in your Old Testament. You realize 75% of your Bible is Old Testament. Look for Christ. Sometimes, it's just you read this strange story and you're like, why is this even in the Bible? You know? And it's kind of horrific to even read at the dinner table with your children. You know? And, you, and it's just wicked and awful. And you just think, what does this have to do with anything? Well, it just points to the wickedness of mankind and their need for redemption. How far man goes in his sin and his need of a Savior and Lord that he submits to to redeem him from the mess. Sometimes it's actually very precise though. It's actually a very specific, clear, plain, messianic witness to who Christ is. And that's what we have here in this text. This is a quote from Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Over 30 times. Over 30 times. It is the most quoted verse, which is really remarkable. And so Jesus is saying, within Psalm 110.1, there's a witness to who I am that you religious leaders have overlooked and misunderstood while at the same time priding yourselves on the knowledge of the Old Testament that you claim to possess and by which you earn all of your respect from the people. So what is Jesus what is Jesus making this argument for? Well, it really is for public shame of the false shepherds before all the people. That's why he's making this argument. They don't understand their Old Testament. And so, Jesus, here's here's the essence of what's going on here. For David himself, remember David, inspired of the Holy Spirit, writes Psalm 110 and says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, what's happening here? The first Lord... Now, God, understand God, in Psalm 110.1, it's Yahweh. The Lord, you know, when you see capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav There you go, there's your Hebrew lesson for the week. The Lord said to my Lord, my, meaning my is David, right? My Lord, who is so... The Lord, God, said to my David, Lord. Well, who is that Lord? David is the greatest king in Israel's history. He's the ideal king. He is the king to which Israel looked and the king greater than David to which they longed to have returned to rule the nation with righteousness, equity, and justice. That's David. So who in the world could David be referring to when he says, my Lord. What, what earthly master could David possibly be referencing here? It doesn't make any sense to be earth, any earthly master. And, and this is one of, the reasons why this, one of the reasons why this passage is quoted more times in the New Testament than the Old, because the second Lord is the Messiah. And what David knew about the Messiah was he was the Lord. He was his Lord. David understood that, even from the revelation that he had in the Old Testament. And so what's happening here is David says, the Lord said to my Lord, Messiah, who is Christ, the the Christ, who is Jesus, sit at my right hand, take the seat of honor, until I make your enemies your footstool. So, this is what Jesus is interpreting that as, right? He says, David thus calls him Lord. But here's the question. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Let's, let's start with this question, and we'll get back to the, real, the question that Jesus is asking here at the end and why it matters. 
But the Old Testament expectation was that the Messiah would be a son of David. So why is that the case? Why is, when I say that, why is it actually the case that there's an Old Testament expectation that the Messiah would be a son of David? I want to point you just to two passages, and there's several. If you have a pen and you like to write down verses, I'll give you a couple of them. But let me just point you to just a couple quickly. The first is 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 7 is the Davidic covenant. And this is, the, this is God's covenant with David that he would have a son who would rule over Israel forever. Okay? And um, so what happens in 2, Cha- 2 Samuel chapter 7, just pick it up in verse 12. Hear this if you're not turning there. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now it goes on because you understand that oftentimes in Old Testament prophecy, there's an immediate fulfillment and there's a more distant fulfillment. Right? Remember in the Old Testament, there's Prophecy that sometimes has an immediate fulfillment. Well, the immediate fulfillment is, get, is who? Solomon, right? David's son, Solomon. But it can't only be speaking about Solomon. Right? David's in a tomb, right? Solomon's in a tomb. Their kingdoms didn't last forever. In, they didn't rule forever. But he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's that? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. But you know it's not all Jesus because listen, in verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. We're not talking about Jesus there. Who are we talking about? Solomon. But Solomon didn't rule and have a kingdom forever. And at the end, it was pretty awful. And so there's the beginning here of an expectation that one will come and have a kingdom and rule forever. And so there's the Old Testament expectation is laid down. If you glance over to Isaiah chapter 9. In verse 6, right, this is the famous Christmas passage, but follow the whole thing. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Messiah will come and reign on the throne of David and have a kingdom that lasts forever. If you glance over to Isaiah 11... All of the restoration of the hope of Israel was in this Messiah. Verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father, right? Remember? In the lineage of Jesus is Ruth and Boaz. Boaz and Ruth have Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so, I don't know, my wife and I were walking around our yard with a chainsaw and poison the other day. And, uh, seems to be an annual occurrence. My wife uses the chainsaw, I take the poison. <laughs> and uh, so, well, what are we doing? Well, it seems like annually we have, you know, we have these random trees, some of them just these invasive trees that will just spread like wildfire we don't just kind of keep them at bay. Um, they're called tree of heaven, but um, 
That shouldn't be their name. And then sometimes, you know, there's a really nice tree that we're trying to make sure that we kind of protect a little bit, and some other tree has grown up like into it, and so we've cut that tree off at the stump, right? And poisoned it. And yet, by the next year, there's shoots, shoots coming out of that stump everywhere, you know? And it's really just the most irritating reality, right? So then we take the chainsaw and we cut off all those and we repoison the stump and all the shoots and you hope that the thing is going to die and you don't have to do this again. But I realized, I realized when I read Isaiah 11 that Jesus is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And that this reality, this reality of the stump is still alive and the stump is going to send forth shoots of life is actually a picture that God put in creation for me to think of Jesus. So I'm still going to cut the shoots off. But I'm going to think differently about them. Because God actually put this in His creation to understand that Christ comes from the stump of Jesse in the line of David as the Messiah. And then turn all the way back to Luke. Chapter 1. What does the angel say? What does the angel say to Mary? Chapter 1, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's going to reign over the people of God forever. And of His kingdom, there will be no end. This is Jesus, okay? And so, here's the thing. Jesus is taking issue with the religious leaders because they rightly understand that Jesus will be a son of David. That He will, the Messiah will be, in human form, a son of David. They also rightly understand that he will be a greater king than David. What they completely fail to understand is that the son of David is God the Son. What they completely fail to understand is that Jesus Christ is the Lord in the flesh and that the Messiah is Yahweh who has come to redeem His people. That this Messiah wasn't just a little bit greater than David. He's David's Lord. The Lord of heaven and earth. And so Jesus says, well, why why does David say? The Lord said to my Lord. See, Jesus is actually establishing that the more important reality is not that Jesus is the son of David in human form. The more important reality is that the Messiah is the Lord. So how is he his son? Well, he's his son by lineage. but he's his Lord. So, you guys are rejecting, you're rejecting on the basis of your commitment to the Old Testament Scriptures that you pride yourself on. You're rejecting what David himself says about the Messiah. That he is his Lord. 
and that He is your Lord. And that He's standing right in front of you. And if you do not repent, He will destroy you. And all of this, of course, argues from the New Testament being fulfilled in Jesus in this moment. I want you to note this second thing. Right? The, God is the great monarch of history. The first thing is that Jesus is arguing that the Old Testament is authoritative to reveal who the Messiah would be. That he is David's Lord, and he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he's the Lord of every other person under the sun, whether they submit to him or not. second thing is this, is God is the great monarch of history. You know, we, we talk about, right, and uh, in thinking about politics, we talk about absolute monarchies, right, where the king of a nation has absolute power, whatever the king says goes. But the truth of the matter is, in real reality, there is no absolute monarchy on the earth. Right? Every king is a delegated authority by the appointment of Jesus Christ. There actually is one absolute monarchy, and it is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of all. There is no other absolute monarchy. Right? Jesus doesn't have rival, rivals in history of all the kingdoms that have arisen and fell at his hand, by the way, of all the nations that have arisen and been destroyed at his hand, there hasn't been a rival of an absolute monarchy amongst any of them. They've been empires that have rose and empires that have fallen at His feet. And the reason I'm making this point is because in this passage, what you're seeing is there's a whole connection to history. There's the promise of a Messiah, right? And in Jesus, now the Messiah is here. And there's a whole history of a lineage. Right? Luke chapter 3 records the whole lineage from Adam all the way to Jesus. You can go back and look at that later if you want. So there's a whole history that's connected here between David and Jesus and then even before. And that lineage is a royal lineage. It's kingly. It's about monarchy. And ultimately, since Jesus is the Lord of David, the point that I'm just wanting you to think about and note as you kind of zoom out and think about all the connecting points in history between David and Jesus and prior is God's rule over all the earth. That He has been an absolute monarch. And the whole earth would do well to heed what He says. You know, one of the things that we tend to not recognize today and in a passage like this should just point it out to us that God controlled history for there to be David and covenant and a whole lineage that would lead to the Messiah just as He said. Have you thought about... I mean, just think about history. Think about all the threats to the lineage. Go back to Abraham. The promise to Abraham that God would make him a great nation. In Him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. It was an incredible promise to one man. Which took incredible faith to actually believe. I mean, can you imagine somebody saying that to you? Yeah, well, imagine somebody saying to you that there's a crucified Messiah and He's your only hope of salvation. It takes great faith to actually believe that. But the point being, there's a whole threat, constant threat to the lineage that would lead to the Messiah. Empires rose. Empires enslaved Israel. Right? Israel's hauled off to Babylon under the judgment of God. Right? It wouldn't take much to wipe out a lineage. And God rules over it all and Jesus comes forth in the lineage of David just as He said He would do testifying to us that there's one absolute monarch who has ruled all of history. It's mind-boggling if you think about it. And we tend to not recognize the sovereignty of God in history. 
unless it's just biblical history, you know, unless it's just what's recorded in Scripture, we might kind of recognize the sovereignty of God in history, right? We don't recognize the sovereignty of God um, in the raising up of nations. We don't recognize the sovereignty of God when a nation is destroyed or an empire is destroyed. We never think that it's the hand of God, right? Because God is sovereign insofar as He rules salvation, history, um, as we have recorded in Scripture, but then when all these other things happen in the world, the way we kind of function is like, well, I mean, see, we would never say God judged anything. We would never say that. Why would we never say that? Because we don't believe God actually judges things as the sovereign monarch of all history. Or that He, you know, but this is what Scripture tells us. This is what Scripture tells us. And this is all through your Old Testament. It's just through the whole thing. But let me just give you like a really clear example. In Job chapter 12, verse 23. Just, just take one verse. He makes nations great and he destroys them. Which means that God made our nation great and in our rebellion, what will he do? He will destroy us. He enlarges nations and leads them away. And the whole, that whole section in Job there, where Job says, with God are wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If, we, if he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and judges he makes fools. He loses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He humbles them. In other words, he leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and He destroys them. And the story of Scripture is that there is one absolute monarch. And He rules His world through kings. And now ultimately rules through Jesus Christ, the exalted Lord, the King of kings from the royal line of King David. David thus, David calls him my Lord. So I want you to note this. Note Jesus' willingness to publicly shame, to publicly shame false shepherds. That's what the whole passage is doing. The whole passage is publicly shaming the false shepherds. That they have no understanding. So in other words, and he's doing it so precisely. He's doing it so precisely at the point at which they pride themselves. Because what do the scribes pride themselves on? Right? The scribes are the seminary professors. What do seminary professors pride themselves on? And seminary professors pride themselves on plenty of things. But what do they pride themselves on? They pride themselves on their knowledge of the Old Testament, of Scripture. And it's amazing. We can do the exact same thing. We can think this is true. This we kind of think this is true, and this is true, and this is true. And it's like, but we just don't even think like how little we actually know our Bibles, and that one passage of Scripture can kind of bring that whole thing down. And so, Jesus, right, being being expected to be in the line of David, a human son in the offspring and line of David, greater a greater king than David, who will rule with righteousness, justice, and equity, but. That category, it just reduces who the Messiah is in the teaching of the Old Old Testament to merely man. And what we have in Jesus is the Word became flesh. And so he shames them. You don't even understand. You don't understand what King David said about the Messiah. So what are you priding yourselves on again? No. What we think about these kinds of things and Jesus' willingness to publicly shame false shepherds, what we think is this is an okay thing for Jesus to do. 
We just don't think this has any place in Christianity today. Just no one thinks that this should ever be done. Ever. You never do this. You know, it's like if I was, if I was to publicly shame someone who is at least acting like a false shepherd on a point that was really important, at least that, what do you think? What you think is, I'm critical, I'm the one who thinks I know it all, and I'm self-righteous, and I'm divisive. What about principles of unity in the church? That's what you think, isn't it? You know, just listen to what God said to Ezekiel in chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Really, that's the essence of all false shepherding. How can you feed yourself and feed yourself off the flock? That's the essence of all false shepherding. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. You don't do the one thing required of a shepherd. You do the exact opposite. You get rich and secure and safe and well provided for and well insulated and self protected, and you starve the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. Now just think for a second. Just think. This is God's word to Ezekiel. And you say, well, okay, maybe this was okay for Jesus, and maybe this was okay for Ezekiel because Ezekiel was a prophet. And I just think, what in the world is a pastor then? Is he not a shepherd who's supposed to feed the sheep? Called by the Holy Spirit, where real. Holy Spirit kind of stuff happens in the calling, in the, in the ministry calling of the pastor and the elders of the church of God that God gives His gifts to His people to feed them. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. And so then... When, you know, we look across the Christian landscape today, which from my perspective at this point is just absolutely horrendous, and I mean that by everybody you watch on YouTube and everybody you listen to on the radio, the landscape is horrendous. Just horrendous. We think, well, I don't know if that's true. I mean, we're better than Israel. We're better than Israel, right? I mean, Ezekiel was to prophesy to Israel. Yeah, and the point was we were supposed to learn from them as examples that we might not walk in the same ways And if you look at the church in the United States today, it's so sick because it's doing all the same thing. 
All you have to do is read about Israel to understand our nation and the church here. That's all you have to do. Let me give you an example. You know, I just laugh at a lot of this stuff anymore. I honestly, just, I don't even care. At the, the amount of foolishness and folly of the false shepherding in our day, like, you just can't even keep up with it. So I just honestly don't even concern myself with the excessive amount of nonsense. You know, it's like, and, and here's what I mean by that. I mean, criticizing Joel Osteen is like taking candy from a baby. Okay, right, like, I mean, we need to do it, but it's like taking candy from a baby. It's, this is like the easiest criticism on the face of the planet to, to, you know, insulate and protect your church from Joel Osteen. But there's also a lot of false shepherding that's just a lot harder for the church to see the evil of. And my concern is more with that, which means I'm more concerned with the Reformed Church than I am with just any average evangelical, you know, vanilla, barely saying anything worth saying kind of church. All right? I'm just, just like that kind of stuff. It's just like, eh. And I feel like most of you are kind of fairly inoculated to that anyway. So what good does it do? Like, what courage does it take to criticize Joel Osteen in front of you? Nothing. It takes absolutely no courage. Any coward could get up here and do that. But if I say something about Tim Keller, or if I say something about Dr. MacArthur, And so what I mean by that, what I'm talking, what I'm trying to kind of give you the, I don't concern myself with just the endless folly, okay? So, you know, the SBC is in an uproar, and I just laugh at the whole thing. You know, I just don't get bent out of shape. I think some of this stuff you just have to laugh at. The SBC is all bent out of shape, right? Because they just elected a new president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and um, Ed Linton is his name, immediately comes under fire for endless amounts of plagiarism. Endless amounts of plagiarism. <laughs> you just... You know, you just laugh at it. You just laugh at it because this kind of stuff is just the most common, like, it just happens so many, these kind of things happen so many times a day, you can't even get irritated by it. You just have to laugh at how stupid it is. All right? Well, it's not just stupid, it's excessively stupid. So my concern isn't the plagiarism. Okay? My concern actually isn't the plagiarism, even though that's as bad as can be, you know? Don't worry about it, church. I just copied this one off the internet this week. You know, and I didn't even copy it from somebody good. I didn't even copy it from somebody who said things that were true. They said things that were awful and not true. They deserted the flock like a false shepherd does. And I copied that, you know. So uh, Dr. Robert Gagnon kind of summarized the way some of this reality happens. and, And this is what I'm talking about. The plagiarism isn't actually my concern. My concern is actually what's said. All right? Remember this. Imagine this. So I'm the one who's divisive, right? Because I'm criticizing a false shepherd. Someone who's false shepherding, at least at this point. At least. And yet they're the ones who chew on the sheep's neck. The sheep became food for the wild beasts. But I'm the one who's divisive, right? Tim Keller in 2011, Dr. Gagnon compiles this, right? 2011. And this is why we have to shame false shepherding. Because it will go, because the wrong lies will just go on forever. And they won't just go on forever, they'll multiply forever. So that the sheep should just go get their necks chewed on by the wolves. Tim Keller in 2011. First of all, heterosexuality does not get you to heaven. I happen to know this. You know, charmingly said. 
So how in the world can homosexuality send you to hell? I don't know, maybe if we just obeyed God's, what God says. Maybe he just remembered Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was that they were inhospitable, right? <laughs> Jeez. They wanted to rape angels, right? I mean, that's what our culture is today. I, I, I'm convinced that our culture wants to rape angels. So how in the world can homosexuality send you to hell? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, the effeminate, those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, the wrath of God comes upon these things. So how in the world can homosexuality send you to hell? Okay, 2011. 2019, J.D. Greer. Let me say something very clearly. Let me say something very clearly. Homosexuality does not send you to hell. Here's how I know. Being heterosexual doesn't send you to heaven. January 2020, Ed Litton. Homosexuality does not send people to hell. How do I know that? Well, because heterosexuality doesn't send people to heaven. You can't make this stuff up. It's so bad. What if we just believe what God said in His Word? So this is what I say. The whole landscape is horrendous. It's just horrendous. just absolutely deserting the sheep to let them get fed on by wild beasts, let their necks get chewed on by wolves. I mean, wolves don't even eat them. Have you ever watched anything lately about the wolf population out of control in our, in our country? You know what wolves do? They don't attack a cow and just eat it all up for a period of three weeks and then go get food again. They just kill 11 cows and then go kill 11 more and just keep going. Wolf is a perfect illustration of the false shepherds. And Jesus is completely willing to completely shame all those who are feeding themselves in His church and publicly shame them that no one would follow them, that everyone would see how far they are from actually believing the simple, plain words of Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. You must submit your life to Him. You must submit your life to Him. And listen, He's not a Lord who uh, hasn't done everything possibly imaginable by His gracious and merciful life for you to see that He's not a Lord who only rules with an iron fist. Though He does, to all who will not repent, He will destroy them. And He will destroy you if you refuse His Lordship. 
And if you think you're going to be the Lord of your own life, He will one day show you that you are not. And you will face judgment for it. And you will face judgment for it forever. Because He will protect His people from all who rebel against Him. And He will glorify Himself as the great judge and king of all the earth and vindicate His own name and His own glory. And He will do it against you if He must. But you have to understand something. He also longs for all men to come to repentance and for all men to be saved and for all men to submit their whole life to the Lordship of Christ and to the rule of His law and of His ways. And if you look at yourself and you think, I'm the Lord of my life, really. I'm just doing what I want to do and I'm going the way that I want to go and have not much thought for Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who's the great monarch of history, then you can repent. You can submit your life to Jesus Christ because the Savior here who's shaming the religious leaders is the Savior who in a few days who is going to head to a cross and He's going to pay for the sins to pay the penalty. He's going to bear the guilt that we all have for having rebelled against God. He's going to bear that guilt on Himself because He loves the people whom He is dying to redeem. And He loves you. And He would save you if you would repent and believe that Christ died on that cross in your place. He has no rivals to his lordship. He is Lord whether you pretend to be Lord of your life or not. He has controlled all of history to the destiny of giving up his life on that cross to make a people for himself. And I want you to be included. I want you to be included in his people and I want you to be found in the kingdom that he reigns forever and ever. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, for some of you who are born again and submitted to the Lordship of Christ, your perspective of his rule of your life is that he's really just a harsh tyrant and that you're pretty much constantly on the verge of being cut off from his kingdom. And you kind of think about yourself like that because you see sin in your own heart and life. And you're having a hard time actually believing what the mercy of God is. You know, that he will not treat you according to your transgressions. That he actually saved you not by your works of righteousness which you have done, but according to his mercy. And I want to encourage you with this. And so what you see in your life, what you see in your life is, as I look at my Lord, I'm striving and I'm performing my duties and I'm trying to be the best Christian I can be. And what I do in the process is I keep stumbling all over myself. And what happens is I try, but really what it's like, it's like four trips, you know? And then what you think is, I should stop striving. And I should stop making an effort at duty because all I see is in my all I see is my heart's rebellion. All I see is my heart's rebellion. It's the only thing I see. And if all you can see is your heart's rebellion, how discouraging is that to you performing any duty of obedience to your Lord? Right? It's so discouraging to think like that. It's so discouraging. I read this this week. And I'm going to tell you, you've got to get this in your heart and life about who Christ is to you. You're his beloved saints. You've got to get this in your heart and life about who Christ is. Then you've got to get this in your heart and life about how you treat your spouse and how you think about your children. It should encourage us to duty that Christ will not quench the smoking flax, but blow on it till it flames. Some are loath to do good because they feel their hearts rebelling and duties turn out badly. You know, it's like, I tried, 
and I screwed it all up, <laughs> you know? It just got worse. Teach this. Please teach this to your kids. I don't want all of your kids growing up like a bunch of moralists who are going to be harsh and critical and very difficult to please. They're going to make terrible spouses if all they do is easily take offense if that's who they think Christ is. So listen. Some are loath to do good because they feel their hearts rebelling and duties turn out badly. You know how many times your children try to do something and it just turns out badly? We should not avoid good actions because of the infirmities attending them. Now listen. Christ looks more at the good in them, which he means to cherish, than the ill in them, which he means to abolish. Christ looks more at the good in our performance of our duties, which he means to cherish. than the ill in them, which he means to abolish. That's how Christ looks at you. If you're a Christian, that's how Christ thinks about you. And your best efforts that are still attended with your infirmities and tainted with your sin, and sometimes even significant failure in the process. What if you thought about your spouse like that? You know, we've you say occasion, uh, sometimes, believe the best. Just believe the best, unless you have some real reason not to. You know? And I fear in our marriages and with your children that you're, you just endlessly criticize them and endlessly take offense at what they do and don't train yourself to think, oh, yeah, I see the good effort of that. I'm going to cherish the good effort of that. I'm going to be easy to please because I see the good effort in that. And I actually know myself that no good thing have I ever done that wasn't tainted with sin. Be easy to please and slow to take offense because love believes all things and hopes all things. And this is the way Christ is to you. Though eating increases a disease, a sick man will still eat. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm going to stop eating so that nature may gain strength against the disease. So, though sin cleaves to what we do, yet let us do it, since we have to deal with so good a Lord. And the more strife we meet with, the more acceptance we shall have. The more strife we meet with in our infirmities affecting our efforts and our obedience to Christ, you know, the more strife we have the more acceptance we shall have. Christ loves to taste of the good fruits that come from us. Even though they will always savor of our old nature. This is the mercy of your Lord. We have so good a Lord evidenced by Him coming just as He promised to be a Savior who would die for you and a good Lord who would rule over you with all his benevolence. Never-ending benevolence. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Jesus Christ, our Lord, we give you glory. We give praise and thanks to Your name for You have come to save Your people from their sins. You have lived a perfect life and You have brought about the fullness of our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You have canceled the record of debt that stood against us. You have reigned and ruled God our Father over history the one absolute monarch exalting Your Son to the place of King of kings and He is our Lord. He is my Lord. And He is the Lord of all. And we praise His name. And we praise, Lord Jesus, Your rule over Your church, the goodness of Your ways and of Your law. And we thank You that You deal gently 
and tenderly with us in all of our strivings towards righteousness. May we know you as you are according to your truth and not hold to our feelings and opinions otherwise. May those who struggle with believing how severe you are and the need of the fear of God repent and see you and all of your fearful and terrible wrath and rule over the earth. And may those who despise your kindnesses and your mercies and your great love, condescending love, and your gracious salvation and your gracious sanctification of us, may they not hold to their own thoughts and feelings and opinions, but may they be conformed to your truth knowing that you love to taste of the good fruits of our efforts and to cherish them more than to hold ill will against your children for that it remains that you wish to abolish. Thank you, Jesus. We give praise to your name. Amen.